0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Chris Joy. Keen listeners to the podcast will remember Chris from his past podcast episodes, and they'll know that he's not afraid to voice an opinion. They'll enjoy this podcast. We talk about Chris's view on inflation and why Reserve banks around the world and federal banks around the world are so intent on stamping inflation out. Chris gives his view on where he believes the RBA rates are going. He gives his view on economic outlook and which asset classes will are set to do well in the next few years. We also talk about house prices and real estate prices more broadly and where they're heading. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Remember that this episode is not... Specific advice or financial advice of any sort, people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. You are, however, encouraged to keep your feedback coming to me. Please email me at clark at Codacapital.com. Thank you. Chris Joy, welcome back to Inside the Rope.
1: Thank you for having me again, David.
0: Well, we're in interesting times. I, I often say that, um, you know, there's never been a, to- a time in markets where I've you know, said things are very straightforward and they always seem to be interesting times, but now it seems more true than ever.
1: 100%, mate. Like uh, we, we have this mother of all hiking cycles um, <clears throat> that seems interminable. Uh, central banks are pausing and then hiking again. We've seen overnight um, the Bank of Canada shocked the world by recommencing its hiking cycle uh, and bond and equity markets have got comfortable with the idea that they uh, had hit their terminal cash rate uh, in the same way that people thought when the RBA paused, it was potentially the end of the cycle and people got exuberant and bullion again. We saw house prices here in Australia after um, suffering uh, the second largest correction in 40 years of data. Aussie house prices uh, on a peak to trough basis uh, fell 10.0%, Sydney prices fell 14.0%. But the minute the RBA started talking about a pause in February, David, um, everyone thought it was all over Red Rover, you know, strap it on again. um, And we amazingly saw house prices, and this was a surprise to me, start to actually appreciate quite sharply in Sydney, you know, over 4%, over 3% nationally. Um, But then of course, you know, the RBA, and we did argue this David relentlessly in all of our communications that we thought that the pause was just a break uh that the rba very commonly in hiking cycles pauses and then hikes. so in 20, uh, 2009 to 10 they paused for four months sorry five months and hiked and then in the uh, cycle leading up to 2008 they actually paused four times and then hiked and three of those pauses were for 12 months or more and and this as you know has kind of huge consequences for asset pricing for all investment categories because where that cash rate lands or that so-called discount rate lands it becomes a hurdle rate for all investments.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, and let's helicopter up a little bit and just remind listeners why inflation is so bad. Why are all the world's banks so focused on getting inflation back to the two to 3% objective and out of the system?
1: Yeah, so this is super important because you recall that post the pandemic, the central banks were working with a thesis that inflation was transitory. And the idea was supply chains had been disrupted. We shut down economies. And uh, as a consequence, supply-side inflation, which is normally proxied by goods inflation, so the cost of physical goods, uh, that rocketed to 12% in Australia and 12% in the US. And the central banks correctly argued that this would be a pig through a python in terms of the data. It would be a one-off shock and then would normalize. and. You know, so it has been, uh, we've seen supply-side goods inflation in the US fall from 12% uh, down to 0%. And here in Australia, we're actually still struggling with higher goods inflation. So our goods inflation has fallen from 12% to about 5.5%. Um, so that's the, I guess, positive part of the story. The negative part of the story is the central banks really missed the fact that there was a demand-side dynamic at play as well. And that was a function of unprecedented stimulus- in the form of fiscal spending or fiscal stimulus. So governments giving record amounts of cash to both households and businesses. And then also the lowest interest rates we'd ever seen in history, combined with record money printing by central banks um, in an in an effort to bid up the value of all assets. Um, and, and two little kind of, I guess, wrinkles to that demand side part of the story, David. Um, every Thursday night in my business, called cool by Capital, I have 38 staff, and we run something called the Hunger Games. And it's a best ideas competition. And three people, uh, randomly selected, have to present for 10 minutes on their best idea. And we score it, and there's a $100 prize for the winner. And our macro guys uh, presented in um, 2021 and again in 2022, arguing that um, that the fed would have to go to five to six percent now at the time the fed was at zero and mm-hmm. now the feds at 5.25 percent and they also argued that the rba would have to go to four to five percent uh and at the time again the rba was at zero and I, I thought they were a little crazy to be honest i mean we, we argued publicly in late 21 that we'd have to have record increases in interest rates but we thought publicly that the fed would go to north of three percent and we're again now at 5.25 so coming back to the demand side of the equation and and the inflation story. One of the other things that macro team quantified was, and it's really interesting, mate, because those cash handouts were saved. And um, in addition to the cash handouts, so the record fiscal stimulus, we also shut down obviously our cities and, and states, and people couldn't spend. And one of the things that our macro guys did was quantify, I think for the first time, precisely how much that saving was worth. So we all saw the record increase in the household savings rate, but what people hadn't figured out was precisely how how much that's worth in dollar terms. And we we estimated that Aussie households had saved about 20% of their annual income as cash. And what's interesting, David, is it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, when we do the numbers, or you're young or old, it's very consistent. It's about 20% as a share of income. And that has barely been spent, and it's a massive cash pile. And it's another source of demand because Households are going to spend that, and that's more demand, more growth, more inflation. And it basically uh, helps explain why, despite, um, uh, what is it, 400 basis points now of rate hikes from the RBA, the economy's been incredibly resilient. The unemployment rate's only 3.7%. Demand's been strong. If Up until recently, if you looked at restaurants and entertainment view, venues, they've been buzzing. So the, the key kind of message for your listeners is we had a supply-side shock. And that's mm-hmm. passed all those things have now normalized and supply side inflation is it's kind of back to normal but that's the first point the second point is we also had a demand side shock record fiscal and monetary stimulus and that gave us um services inflation and that's what we call demand side inflation in the us demand side inflation or services inflation has come off a very low level up to six percent in australia it's come off a very low level up to eight percent so the paradox for australians is that our core inflation on a three-month annualized basis is running about 4.9%. The RBA target's two and a half. In the US, it's running at 4.8%. The Fed target's two. And services services inflation has really superseded goods inflation as the main driver of uh, overall price pressures. Uh, And that's in turn being driven by excess demand and very low unemployment rates. But there's another final part of the story, and it is a kind of uh, complex story, and that's wages. Now, it's really interesting. Wages growth in Australia year-on-year, private sector growth uh, is around just shy of 4%. And that's nothing kind of catastrophic at all. The problem is that our labor productivity um, or workers' output per hour is the worst we've seen in about 40 years. And so when you measure something called, and this is gonna be jargon that will bore the pants off listeners, but mm-hmm. it's something the RBA is absolutely fixated on right now. It's called unit labour costs. And all that means is the amount of wages that a business has to spend to produce a unit, a unit of output or a unit of stuff, right? So the mm-hmm. marginal wage cost of producing stuff for businesses, that's the key thing the RBA is focused on. And that we got the data this week, actually, I think it was yesterday, uh, and that's running at 8% a year. So we have really, really strong uh, unit labour costs. And that's a key driver of inflation. In fact, when the RBA forecasts inflation, they use unit labour costs. And current unit labour cost, cost growth of 8% per annum is immensely inflationary. And this is why, and we have argued this for one to two years. In late 21, we argued rates were going to go much higher than people thought, and they were going to smash equities and housing, and commercial real estate and crypto. Um, and then we also argued that in, it was heroic to assume that inflation would straight line linearly back to 2% or 2.5%. We've argued, David, as you know, that it's more likely that inflation will remain sticky and stubborn because of these demand-side pressures, and we'll see core inflation settle at somewhere between 3 and 5%, and that's exactly where we're at. And the problem is now that the central banks are gonna have to put economies actively into recession to kill businesses, create job losses, increase unemployment, smash wage growth, and thereby uh, crush inflation. And and people kind of, I think, don't understand, David. There's no optionality or choice here. This is an existential crisis uh, for the central bank's credibility. They either win or lose is the way they're looking at this. And they are going to take no prisoners. And that's why the RBA is at 4.1%. And, and, and just on that 4.1%, 12 months ago, the RBA was telling us that they thought neutral or a normal interest rate for their overnight cash rate, which is what they said, would be 2.5%. A few weeks ago, there was a Freedom of Information release where all their internal uh, analysis was disclosed. And they said, no, we got it wrong. A normal interest rate that is not going to rain in inflation is 3.8%. And we were up until this week at 3.85. So their modelling is now saying they need to get to almost 5 or or specifically 4.8% to get inflation under control by June 2025. The problem with that, David, is June 2025 is an awfully long way away and the risk is they go heavier and harder to bring inflation back to earth faster.
0: And, Chris, why remind the listeners why the bank wants to bring or needs to bring inflation under control why can't the bank sit there with inflation at five
1: percent yeah and you probably I get asked these questions all the time David and and like I hear things like well why can't we just lift our inflation target let's just lift it to four or five percent um, you know why why is the RBA so sort of fixated on this and that's because the history of humanity shows that unless we have something called price stability then you tend to go through, uh, Bounce of uh, hyperinflation and deflation. So knowing that the cost of the consumer goods and services we buy each year is going to be stable and predictable at around 2 to 3% per annum, that then means when we come to negotiating our wages, we know that our cost of living is going to be about 2 to 3% per annum. And therefore the wages that we require to um, uh, to, uh, kind of meet that cost of living can also be uh, increased at a rate of 2% to 3% per annum. If, on the other hand, we don't know what inflation is going to be, and this is the thing the RBA is absolutely petrified about right now, in their statement this week, for the first time they removed an assertion that they'd previously made for a long time, and that is that consumer and business inflation expectations are well anchored. Basically, what we think about future inflation is well anchored around the RBA's official target of two to 3% per annum. The RBA is now concerned they've lost that anchoring and that we actually all expect higher inflation going forward, which is true. Inflation in Australia is running at almost 7% per annum. And we've just had the Fair Work Commission increase the minimum wage by 8.6%. Which is incredible. Now, on our modeling, the RBA only expected the minimum wage to increase by 4.6%. And they also increased all award wages by 5.75%. Now that affects about one in four, ultimately, that affects about one in four workers beyond the fact that, you know, all employers are going to have to grapple with their employees saying, but wait a second, you know, minimum wages are up eight point six. Awards are up 5.75 and inflation's up seven. That's It doesn't sound unreasonable. You know, Joe Bloggs saying, why can't I get a six or 7% wage increase? The problem is Joe Bloggs is not productive. The problem is that if, if he gets a 7% wage increase with no productivity, in fact, negative productivity, which is what we have right now, then um, that's going to feed straight back into flat inflation. And the reality is I fear, David, is that we right now face a wage price spiral. So coming back to your question, the history of the world shows that if you have a credible central bank that people trust to crush inflation and keep it at two to 3% per annum, if people believe the RBA will do that, then they don't demand crazy wage growth. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you get stable consumer price growth uh, goods and services growth and stable wages. Uh, the RBA, for the record, is is saying you know really that unit labour cost measure or that uh, the marginal cost of uh, the marginal wage cost of producing something for a business can only increase at about three and a half percent per annum. You know about two and a half percent for inflation and about one percent for productivity. So we're running at eight percent per annum. And we need to be back down at 3.5% per annum. So this is an existential battle for the ages. This is the biggest inflation crisis in 40 years. And investors do not understand this. Professional investors don't understand this. The equity market is living in la-la land. The housing market, after suffering the second biggest correction in 40 years, is also currently sitting in some irrational exuberance. And it really changes... The minimum return we require from all investments. If you can get bank deposits paying five to six percent, right, how could you buy an investment property yielding four percent before transaction costs, or a commercial property paying four to five percent, or even you know, shares paying only six percent? If shares are giving you the same yield as basically cash deposits or bank bonds. That's just not going to work. People aren't going to take the risk. So they're going to demand higher yields from riskier investments. And to get those higher yields, as you know, David, the price of those investments need to fall. So we are in a multi-year iterative back and forth battle uh, of shifting to a new normal, which is structurally higher interest rates, which is going to change adversely almost all asset prices. So, Chris...
0: With wage push inflation being so tough, and it seems to me that it's a bit like um, a tube of toothpaste that uh, easy to squeeze out and not so easy to get back in. Um, if, you, if we're in a democracy with a government that's elected and we've got a Labour government in power at the moment, um, how do they convince the people that lower wages growth is actually good for them in the long term?
1: Yeah, well, lower wages growth... Uh, that crucially is um, commensurate with their productivity. I think that's the message. It's not necessarily about lower wage growth. It's, hey guys, you know, as a nation, we need to be more productive and you should be paid based on your personal productivity. Uh, If you worked really, really hard and you've produced insane results, you absolutely deserve pay rises. But, But if you simply keep on demanding pay rises that have nothing to do with your productivity and are instead pegged to inflation, then we're gonna have this catastrophic wage price spiral and we're gonna have crazy high interest rates, huge unemployment, a lot of people are gonna lose their jobs. So we need to think about the um, best way to support our collective prosperity. And, and that's through productivity. And you know, I think there's also, um, uh, it's definitely true that labour productivity has been declining for decades. Um, you know, There's been a particularly sharp decline in labour productivity and you know why we say labor productivity i hate jargon but just think about you know it is mm-hmm. personal productivity since the pandemic and i think that's a function of a few things one is that we have drawn into the employment market people that were previously unemployed for long periods of time so our long term unemployment has gone down Now, that's a really good thing but that also means that the quality of workers has deteriorated because those folks you know hadn't been uh, you know recently experienced and skilled uh, and then I think there's also a bit of a generational divide. I um, incurred the wrath of um, many, many millennials uh, when I had the temerity to write in the financial review uh, a few weeks ago. And this, unfortunately, ended up on the front page of the Daily Mail and was covered by the Herald Sun. And the Today Show asked me to be interviewed about this, and I, I of course, refused. But But I kind of made the point that, you know, when I'm 46 and when I started at Goldman Sachs, in mergers and acquisitions. And I'm not saying this is for everybody. And I'm not saying this is the benchmark and I'm not saying this is reasonable. But literally in my first 12 months I pulled 90 all nighters, which was, you know, two consecutive days without sleep. That's not normal. Uh, and that's not healthy. And it's one of the reasons I left investment banking. But but you know, I think generationally most people would probably say that their parents worked a little bit harder than they did and their grandparents worked a little bit harder than their, their parents. And certainly that you know, it's absolutely true that generation generationally our lives have become uh, a lot more comfortable. And I think there's a lot of complacency that's seeped into behaviours and expectations. And there's a very strong sense of entitlement. You know, anyone under the age of 40 hasn't seen a serious recession in Australia, hasn't seen serious inflation in Australia, hasn't seen, you know, really high interest rates in Australia um, during their working lives. And and I think people have expectations that aren't necessarily matched with their Personal productivity and performance, and and the truth is, and here's the here's the scary thing. My chief macro strategist said to me literally yesterday, he goes, "Chris, when the RBA talks about this wage price spiral, with this, you know, when they when they're discussing this inflation crisis and how to get it under control, they always talk about productivity, but they talk about product. They talk about three things you can do. Um, one is you know, invest in more capital stock, which just means invest in invest in you know infrastructure and." and equipment to make us more productive, technology, whatever. Two, we can you know, undertake reforms to make workplaces more productive. But the third point is you actually just have less workers. Mm-hmm. For a given level of business output, you have less workers, and that means sacking staff, and that means we're actually running too much employment. That is what the RBA is saying. They're saying there's too many people with jobs in the economy. We need to kill businesses. We need to increase unemployment, and we need to reduce wage growth. Uh, and increase productivity and, and basically produce the same quantum of goods and services with less people. Sadly, that, that is the case. Um, so it's really, really interesting, I think, David.
0: So Chris, given this outlook um, and where we are in the cycle, where do you think people sitting on assets at the moment should be thinking about or should be hiding? Or what does their asset allocation look like going forward, given this outlook?
1: Yeah, I think this is incredibly simple, mate. And we've argued this since literally December 2021. If you have a blank sheet of paper and you sat there in December 2021, we said, you know, the cash rate's going from 0% to north of 3%. That's going to crush equities, housing, commercial real estate, venture capital, private equity, crypto, um, everything. It's high discount. You know, basically think about the huge boom in asset prices that we had post the pandemic. And then if you go back further in time, really since 1990, that was really driven by one thing. You know, the RBA had a cash rate in January 1990 that was north of 15%. -hmm. And then it went down to 0%. Money was free or very, very cheap. And people thought that was permanent. It was a forever thing. Phil Lowe, the governor of the RBA told us that money would, or the cash rate would stay at zero until 2024, he was wrong. Uh, And that process is reversing out. So the assets that appreciated in value now need to depreciate in value. Because they're gonna to need to pass much higher yields when we eventually recognize that getting four and a half percent per annum from a grade office property is unacceptable because you can get five to six percent from riskless, perfectly liquid cash deposits. Uh getting um you know four percent from Resi property when you know you can get the same from cash is also unacceptable. Getting six percent from bank shares when bank bonds are paying you six to seven percent, CBA bonds right now are paying six and a half percent. CBA equities are paying six point two percent. Like, why would you buy CBA stocks when you get a bet on a 6% yield? And that's a frank yield. The cash yield is only something percent You can get a cash interest rate on CBA bonds of 6.5%. So these are really profound changes in the way we are um, thinking about the architecture of financial markets. So, so the, the prescription is simple. You want to be really long cash. You want to be really, really long uh, floating-rate, high-grade bonds issued by governments, banks, or too-big-to-fail companies that have no default risk and no liquidity risk. So these were you know, specifically bonds issued by CBA, and NAB, and Westpac. They're senior bonds. They're T2 bonds. Uh, you know Companies like Pfizer, Verizon, Woolworths, Kohl's, etc. cetera. Um, so let's just think about that. Cash is going to pay you a higher interest rate the higher the IBA cash rate rises the best performing asset class on planet earth that's liquid and that was properly valued in FY22 was cash right uh and cash will probably be one of the best performing asset classes again in FY23 uh floating rate bene- uh, bonds benefit from higher interest rates so that that makes sense if you don't have the default risk and you can you can trade hundreds of millions of doll- dollars a day of these securities then that that's immensely valuable because it gives you optionality, which I'll come to in a second. The third the third kind of prescription I would have, and I'm not giving anyone personal advice, uh, this is just kind of like my own personal portfolio construction, is you probably want some fixed rate bonds um, and high-grade government and bank fixed rate bonds with no default risk, which are basically infinitely liquid. And that's because at some point they're gonna put us into recession. Our modeling has argued since January 2022 and we've mentioned this to your CODA team, David, and also we've mentioned it publicly, that the US economy will go into recession in in late 23, early 24. And modelling says the same thing for the European economy. The RBA's modelling, as released by their freedom of information disclosures two weeks ago, says there's an up to a two thirds to 85% probability of the Aussie economy going into recession. I think it's quite likely now the Aussie economy goes into recession. And So that's going to be very bad for pretty much everything. And at some point, they're going to cut rates. And when they cut rates, fixed rate bonds are going to perform brilliantly because they appreciate and value the more interest rates decline. So we were super negative floating rate bonds, uh, so credit. So floating rate bonds and credit and fixed rate bonds in late 2021. We had, I think, in total uh, trades, we had about $16 billion of bond and credit shorts between June 21 and June 2022. But now what we're seeing is interest rates have increased spectacularly. So those fixed rate bonds are much more attractive. Credit spreads have exploded by about 150 basis points or 1.5 percentage points. To give you simple numbers, a CBA senior bond in June June 2021 paid you a total interest rate of 0.25%. A CBA five-year senior bond. Today, that same CBA five-year senior bond pays about 5.25%. A CBA tier two bond in 2021 paid you a total interest rate of only 1.25%. Today, it pays you about 6.5%. So the stuff that was really unattractive in late 21, other than cash, cash was pretty much the only thing that was attractive. Now you've got cash, government bonds, and bank bonds. Everything else is cactus as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Equities, I think, will really struggle for a long period of time. If you, you, I think you might've made this point privately to me, but if you look at the price earnings multiple on the S&P 500, cyclically adjusted, it's about 30 times right now. Normally, since 1880, it's been 17 times. But crucially, when inflation in the US, core inflation is running at 5%, it's normally 12 and a half times. A 30 times PE on the S&P, cyclically adjusted, is normally commensurate with core inflation of 2%. So here's the paradox, David. The equity market and commercial real estate and the junk bond markets are all assuming inflation's gonna come right under control and we're not gonna have the mother of all default cycles. But here and now, I can tell you, corporate defaults globally are the highest since 2009. Corporate insolvencies in the US are the highest since 2010. We've been saying this for two years, we're gonna have a huge default cycle, we're seeing it. We're seeing a massive increase in defaults on Aussie home loans, right? Uh, Written by non-bank lenders who are lending to riskier borrowers, a massive increase. Like as in, you know, if you take a representative non-bank that's offering subprime-like loans, the default rate has risen from about 2% to about 4% of all their borrowers just in the last few months, right? And we're only seeing the hiking cycle slowly hit the Aussie economy because about 40% of all borrowers were on fixed rate loans set at 2% in 2020. They're only slowly rotating into variable rate loans this year set on 7% interest rates. So there are long and variable lags associated with the IBA lifting rates and its ultimate impact on the economy. On our modeling, it can take up to five years for that, that impact to really percolate through the economy. So my, my kind of personal advice to myself is, you wanna be liquid, you wanna have optionality, you wanna be long cash, you wanna be long now, uh, high grade floating rate bonds issued by governments and banks. You probably wanna start averaging in to fixed rate bonds and getting duration in the portfolio because that will be a great recession hedge and equity hedge if the shit really does hit the fan, excuse my language. Um, And then you wanna sit on the sidelines and just watch all of this play out.
0: And Chris, what do you think is going on in property markets in particularly let's start with commercial and we'll have to finish with the residential because everyone always wants to know what's going on and you've been very good in that area in the past but in commercial property areas you've spoken to it where you know officers were trading at four and a half percent yield well why would people buy that when they can get five and a half percent without uh, any risk however there's a whole heap of these private trusts and syndicates um, and and it looks like the REITs are sort of the listed markets are saying, well, they're overvalued by about 30%. And we haven't seen a lot of revaluation down a lot of a lot of those private assets. And, you know, A lot of that industrial, commercial um, type of pools of assets. How do you think that plays out over the next year?
1: Yeah. So this is a super important point, David. This is all a function of illiquidity, right? When assets don't trade, they don't reprice. And so what I mean, I deal with a lot of billionaires that own a lot of commercial real estate, right? A lot, I run a lot of money for folks in that space and they're telling me that nothing's trading. And so, I mean, you're still seeing family offices and rich people engage in these crazy transactions where they're buying property on 3.5% yields, 4% yields, 4.5% yields, 5% yields, it makes absolutely no sense. And there, there is a lot of inertia in the decision-making processes. People are used to buying property, it's what they're comfortable with, but eventually it's gonna smack them in the face that so they can get a CBA term deposit paying 5.5, right? And they're gonna be actually, this makes no sense because you know, even if we like the property viscerally, Um, the reality is uh, there's eventually going to be forced selling that's going to push the yield on that property from four and a half to six and a half. Um, I'm hearing that a lot of the real estate investment trust fund managers have target gearing ratios. So they want to maintain the leverage on their assets to say 30 to 40%. And apparently there's a massive pipeline of commercial real estate that needs to be sold in order to maintain those gearing ratios. And the real estate fund managers are petrified that as liquidity lifts and we start to see actual transactions, that suddenly you're gonna have this huge downward re-rating of all commercial real estate valuations. What happens then? Well, the debt that they hold against those properties as a proportion of the value of those properties goes through the roof. What happens then? Well, they're suddenly breaching all their leverage limits and they're forced to sell. Um, The other thing is that we need to understand that after the GFC, the regulators went to all the banks and said, listen, you've got to stop lending to these dud borrowers, right? You guys." You know, keep on blowing up your balance sheets with credit losses when you lend to risky borrowers. And a lot of that borrowing has shifted into the non-bank system. So into you know non-bank lenders, private credit managers, uh, and in the resi market into kind of non-bank subprime lenders. And we haven't had a default cycle in Australia since 1991. In the GFC, we didn't have two quarters of negative GDP growth. In the GFC, the unemployment rate only went to just above five and a half percent. We haven't seen this adversity. And most of these investors were not running these businesses prior to 2008 and and haven't been tested. And the other scary thing is none of these uh, investors are regulated. Uh, You know, APRA regulates the banks and and really kind of controls what they do and don't do, whereas you've got no regulation and you've also got no um, standardized reporting or disclosure. So you're not likely to learn of problems until it's too late. Um, I, think, I think commercial real estate is an absolute disaster. And I think lending against commercial real estate is an absolute catastrophe. And I think you're going to see defaults and massive amounts of duress. We're seeing this all over the world. This is not, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic or alarmist. We're already seeing a, a huge kind of commercial real estate Uh, Correction in the United States and other parts of the world. We've seen Blackstone default on real estate bonds. In Europe, we've seen Brookfield default on real estate bonds in the US. And this is really the tip of the iceberg. So I think I wouldn't touch commercial real estate with a 40 foot cattle prod uh, until the market's cleared. And it's gonna take years for the markets to clear, because you're gonna need to see the defaults. And we've only just seen the defaults start to increase. And then the lender's gonna have to work through the defaults. Eventually they're gonna be distressed sales. That normally takes 12 months. So we're talking about a multi-year process of paying and a multi-year period of asset price deflation. Um, And the more liquid your assets are, whether it's in real estate, residential property, venture capital, private equity, private debt, the longer it's going to take for those assets to adjust to the new normal of having cash and bonds paying you risk-free returns of five to six percent.
0: And Chris, that's been very, very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, Just to conclude, if we can give a bit of an update of what you think is going to happen to residential house prices, given the immigration um, situation, and obviously residential house prices don't really follow a a valuation return on and a yield sort of metrics like a traditional investment would. Um, What's your view on uh, Australian residential house prices?
1: Our view hasn't changed Um, as much as people want me to change my view. Uh, It hasn't changed. Um, Listen, normally residential housing is highly predictable, and that's one of the reasons we've been uh, able to, with some success, sort of anticipate movements in the housing market for decades. Uh, It's normally really a purchasing power story. It's a function of income and interest rates. Where they go, house prices follow. Interest Mm -hmm. rates go up, purchasing power goes down, house prices go down, and vice versa. Um, In October 21, we said, listen, the RBA is likely to lift interest rates in circa mid-22. They started in May. And we argued that assuming they do a minimum of 150 basis points of hikes, as in assuming that we have a a decent hiking cycle, um, that house prices nationally will need to correct 15 to 25%. Um, We weren't saying to be clear that we thought the RBA was only gonna lift the cash rate by 150 basis points. We were saying the minimum requirement was 150. Our modelling actually assumed a 4.25% cash rate. We published this, I think, in May 2022, this modelling, assuming a 4.25% cash rate. We're at 4.1% right now. Um, Our modelling suggested that Aussie house prices would need to correct in nominal terms by about 30%. Our forecast was 15 to 25. The Five Capital City Index on a daily basis from CoreLogic, which I helped design, uh, fell 10.0. Sydney fell 14.0. But then as we discussed, Sydney house prices are up another 4% plus national house prices are now up 3% just between the period February to May. Now, February to May is seasonally very strong statistically. So normally you get house price increases. Uh, The immigration we expected, that was in our modelling. In July 21, we argued we'd have a tsunami of migration. That hasn't been a surprise at all. I think what was probably um, a surprise and I don't, we, it's hard to quantify this, but there's definitely been a bit of a Chinese and Vietnamese and Asian bid seeping to the demand side of the equation in Sydney and Melbourne, anecdotally. Like there's been a, some foreign money that's come to the market. Maybe that's a, a little bit of a, a game changer. Um, our our expectations for migration and population growth are that they're going back to normal, uh, which is what this kind of surge in population growth and migration is all about. Um, so that that's not really a huge surprise. Uh, in inflation-adjusted terms, so if you look at house prices in real terms, they've fallen 16% already. Um, but we we believe that in the second half of the year, the correction will resume, and um, you know we're still comfortable with a peak-to-trough sorry a peak-to-trough correction of 15 to 25%. But David, you know we we of course could be wrong. We got 10 percentage points. Um, you know maybe it's it's not that bad. But but all of our analytical uh, insights imply that we really need a 15 to 25% nominal correction in order for the housing market to do what it would normally do in response to changes in purchasing power, but also accounting for you know, supply and other sources of demand like population growth. Um, I think my own view is, and I think this is shared by the RBA, is that when they started talking about pausing interest rates at the start of the year, people thought, OK, that's it, that's it. It's done and dusted. You know, It's the end of the hiking cycle and game on right yeah you know, and you've also got to understand that households have that 20% of annual income cash pile uh sitting under the rug and so whilst people may be struggling on a cash flow basis they've still got very substantial savings i would stress however that the rba's own analysis found late last year that if they got to a 3.6% cash rate 15% of all australian borrowers would have negative cash flow what does that mean if you take their income and you deduct mortgage repayments and essential living expenses. We're not talking about porn star expenses, like rich people's expenses. We're talking about essential living expenses. 15% have negative cash flows. Now that's at a 3.6% cash rate. We're now at a 4.1% cash rate, probably going to high fours, possibly even above five. Um, So I would have thought that all the ingredients are in place for the biggest drawdown in Aussie house prices on record. And, and so whilst we did have this bounce, we thought it was a dead cat bounce. And our expectation is we'd give back that bounce and some, um, you know, through the affliction of time. But we I, w- I would stress, um, and some might be surprised to hear this, that, you know, we could be wrong. Um, we haven't really been wrong often on housing, uh, but, you know, maybe maybe there's something we're missing. And, and you think
0: we'd... the RBA has got a few more rises left in them by the sound of it?
1: Absolutely. I think Phil Lowe's got three more meetings. Uh, You know, he first seven years of his reign, he undershot the inflation target, averaged 1.6% inflation. He was looking for two and a half, and he thought he had what is called a disinflation crisis, as in a low inflation crisis. And now he argued for the last couple of years, firstly, that he'd never raised rates until 2024. But then secondly, he argued repeatedly that Australia was different that we didn't have a wage problem, we didn't have a high you know, uh, cost structure problem, we didn't have an inflation problem. Normally the RBA's cash rate, Dave, you might remember folks who are listening, it's normally about 1.6% above the US Fed funds rate over the last circa 30 years of data. So normally our interest rates are higher than the US. As I mentioned, our core inflation is higher, our goods inflation is our services inflation high, is high, and up until um, recently, you know, we were sitting at a 3.85% cash rate and they're, you know, 5 to 5.25. Now we're at 4.1. I think the RBA is now convinced they got it wrong. Uh, you know, the Bank of Canada has just gone to 4.75. The New Zealanders are at 5.5. The Bank of England's at 4.5. The Fed's at 5 to 5.25. I'm pretty confident we're going to somewhere in that in that range. And that would imply uh, a few more hikes. And it wouldn't surprise me if, um, you know, we get uh, hikes... You know, every month for the next three months, or at least a couple more hikes before he leaves. Uh, assuming he leaves at the end of September. So I really feel for Phil Lowe. He's a very smart guy. I think he's a great human being. I'm sure he's an incredibly hard worker. Uh, you know, really well intentioned, uh, amazing person, Phil uh, I don't want to be disrespectful in any way to Phil, but but you know, being brilliant academically and having a PhD from MIT doesn't necessarily mean that you're an amazing decision maker uh, under situations where you face duress and imperfect information. Often the best decision makers are not the smartest guys in the room. They're not the nerds. Um, they can be, sometimes you get a, you know, the confluence of both, but as you know, David, you know, in business and life, it's all about decision making. And uh, what we've learned about the RBA is you know, they've made good decisions in the past, but they've also probably had quite a few own goals um, that with the benefit of hindsight, uh, which is a considerable benefit, uh, they, they regret.
0: Chris, thank you very much for joining us inside the rope. We, we really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, buddy. Love it.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.